Hey, this is Brian. Welcome to another episode of The Aggressive Life. The Aggressive Life is meant to bolster those of us who don't want life to accidentally happen to us, but we actually want to take control of our life. We actually want to decide what we want to do and actually do it. We want to actually decide what to feel and actually feel it. I know it's crazy. You actually can't control your emotions. All the passive weenie boys and weenie girls who think just emotions happen to you. No, you, you actually can control your emotions. It's being aggressive. Aggressive life is about thinking the things that you want to think. The Bible tells us to take every thought captive. So I had this thought going across my mind. I'm supposed to grab it and look at it and before it kicks into my emotions and store it before it kicks into my actions. I say, what do I think about this thought? Do I like it? Do I not like it? That is a long, rambling introduction to a political topic we're going to talk about today. Political topic? Oh my gosh, politics! I don't come to the aggressive life for politics. Well, I know you don't. I know you don't. But, you know, it is called the aggressive life, so mark this up as me being aggressive to bring an issue to us today that I don't hear a lot of level-headed talk about. What we're going to talk about today, the most important political issue in our time, the issue that just will not go away, the issue that is still at the center of geopolitical activities with all nations across the international spectrum, the issue that is the most ancient issue that of all in all of politics. What issue am I talking about? The issue that's charged with race, the issue that's charged with religion, the issue that's charged with making the aggressive life a half-decent broadcast. We're talking about Israel. Yes, Israel and Palestine, the Palestinian crisis, the the West Bank, East Bank, North Bank, South Bank, whatever the heck the bank, Wells Fargo Bank. I, I I can't even keep all these banks straight in my mind. Seriously, folks. We just seemingly calmed down over in Israel with uh, the latest brush up. It just keeps coming up again and again. And I thought we'd have a a level-headed discussion about it. This is kind of my aggressive move because I I know, I know, I know some of you, like you already know what you think about this. And the reason why a person like me wouldn't do this is because you're going to email me that I didn't say this or I should have said that. And everyone's going to send me, everyone's going to send me some podcast. If you heard what this guy said, if you heard what this guy, no, I haven't heard what that guy said, or maybe I have, it doesn't matter. I'm tired. I'm tired of everyone thinking you have the answer. And maybe I don't have the answer. Maybe my guest doesn't have the answer, but we're going to actually talk about it because it's an issue that affects all of us. Who is my guest today? My guest is an Israeli resident. His name is Kalev Myers. Kalev is a lawyer specializing in, among other things, immigration and civil rights law. He's an author and civil rights activist who has advocated for the rights of Palestinians before international government bodies, including the European Parliament. Kalev is founder of Alliance to Reinforce Israel's Security and Economy, also known as Arise, whose work can be best summed up in their slogan, Make Jobs, Not War. He strongly encourages economic collaboration between Israelis and Palestinians as the best hope for a peaceful existence. I've found Kalev's insights very, very helpful. I found him to be a personally invigorating friend. He's a manly man, a totally manly man, jujitsu champion. Of course he would choose that sport. He's a Jiu-Jitsu champion. Kalev Myers, welcome to The Aggressive Life. 
Thank you, thank you. It's uh, great to talk to you again, Brian. All right, Kalev, let's talk. Let's talk Israel. What is the problem with you people over there? Why, why, why can't you get your stuff, your, your, your stuff together? What, 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 why, why does the rest of the world have to look in on you guys and have your problems dictating our happiness? What is wrong with you people? Yeah, the, what's wrong with us is that we actually had the audacity after the uh, horrible, uh, you know, things that took place about a century ago, about 80 years ago in the 1930s and 1940s, you know, after a systematic um, annihilation in, in the concentration camps of the Holocaust, you know, our leadership decided, like you said, um, to take an aggressive uh, stance and to take our destiny into our own hands and uh, not, to, uh, not, not, to, not to play the victim card, but to actually uh, come back to this land and build a country. And that, that is, is very offensive to, to other people who, who don't want to see a, a Jewish state um, in the Middle East or anywhere else in the world. And uh, that's really what it comes down to. We decided to take our lives and our destinies and our future into our own hands and actually build something that would be good for us and good for our neighbors and good for everybody else basic problem, Brian, is this doesn't fit in with basic Islamic eschatology. Like there's no, if, if you're talking about fundamental Islam, you know, it's, it's really a, a, a religion of world domination and there, there's no room for anything but a caliphate and, and it, you know, an Islamic dictatorship, in the, certainly in the Middle East and according to Hamas anywhere in the world. So our existence is, is a big problem to them. So let's make this remedial here at this point, because, you know, a lot of folks have not dug into this and uh, a lot of us just don't remember anything about World War II because we weren't alive. You know, the basic thumbnail is Holocaust, wiped out, eliminated, 6 million Jews. And it was something that garnered world attention. There was this amazing level of empathy and compassion that went out from the world for what this awful thing had happened. And what do you know, the, the Truman administration after World War II, uh, along after some lobbying had happened, decided to throw their weight behind a Jewish state to create a Jewish state in an area where there was a bunch of uh, disparate people groups. I like to think it's all Palestinians as one specific country that they inhabited. It was a bunch of disparate people groups. Since 1948, there has been Jews from around the world that are emigrating to that state. And you've got this hotbed of conflict now because people who were there, they have claimed that they were there before 1948 and their ancestors and all that stuff. And they shouldn't, you know, be forced to live under Israeli rule. And this is the situation we have right now. Am I summing it up correctly? Yeah. And in broad strokes, I think that's, uh, that's accurate. Mm -hmm. That's the basic gist of it. But just give us a better understanding of the term, the terminology. I mean, I've been to Israel 15 times. I've been in there. I've walked all these sites. I've been in every corner of the Holy Land multiple times. I've interacted with Arabs, with Jews, with, uh, you know, just all different kind of people groups. And it's been a very, very enlightening experience for me every single time. And yet I still get confused. That's me. That's me. I know the average person, you know, I bet nine out of 10 people, when they listen to the things in the news, they have no idea what their people are talking about. So just, just like tell Gaza, West Bank. I mean, what, help us understand 
what these names mean and, and, and how that equates to tension within the Israel borders or near the Israel borders. Yeah, I know that, the, that this can be very uh, confusing. But in general, if you look at the map of Israel, Brian, you usually see a chunk kind of carved out on the left-hand side, and that, that would be the Gaza Strip. So it's, it's right on the, the, the Mediterranean Ocean in the corner between Israel and Egypt. And then you see a chunk kind of cut out on the, on, on the right-hand side, which would be the West Bank. It's, it's the West Bank of the Jordan River, actually. So it's between Israel and the Jordan River and actually the state of Jordan. So you have... Uh, Gaza to, to, to the west and what we call the West Bank of the Jordan River to, to the east. In both of these areas, after 1948, Gaza was controlled by Egypt and the West Bank was controlled by Jordan. Uh, th those countries were there. Uh, they never declared a Palestinian state. Nobody expected them to. Nobody asked them to because it was it was uh, it was Arab Muslim rule over Arab Muslims, and that was fine with everybody. But when we were attacked by Six Nations in 1967, what we refer now to the Six Day War, Israel in a defensive war took over both of those areas, the Gaza Strip. It, it took from Egypt and the, and the West Bank from, from Jordan. And shortly after that, a, a, the PLO, or the Palestinian Liberation Organization, run at that time by Yasser Arafat, uh, said that they would do everything they could to create a Palestinian state, actually not only in those areas, but um, in the whole, what they call Palestine, which is the whole map of Israel. But basically their claims have been reduced over the years to those, those two areas, the Gaza Strip and, and, uh, and, and the West Bank. In the Oslo Accords in 1994, I don't want to get too complicated, but an entity was created called the Palestinian Authority, which which does uh, it, it, it's a type of governmental administration of the Palestinians in those two areas, but they haven't been recognized yet as a full state. So there is the tension. We've got so many things that are happening here <laughs> in modern day America. We uh, we don't like the consequences for any of our actions. That's what the passive weenie boys and weenie girls of America like. No consequences ever. Things should just go well with you. And we don't understand that when you start a fight and then you lose, there's consequence. You start a fight, you get punched in the nose, you get a broken nose. That's the way it is. And when these countries all set out to eliminate and wipe Israel from the map, everyone came in. This is just basic history. Everyone came in to eliminate Israel and miraculously, and people would argue divinely miraculously, Israel had no business winning that war. They did. Guess what? You beat up the bull, you get to keep his lunch. <laughs> you, get, you, get, you get to keep his land. And especially when his land is a threat to you. Every single country that borders Israel has all gone the record saying they all want to wipe out and eliminate the nation of Israel. Is that true? That is true. I mean, we, we have since that time uh, a, a signed on peace accords, both with Egypt and Jordan. Um, but it's true of all the other nations around us. Um, but I want to say also that immediately after after we took these territories over, Israel told the UN, we're willing to, to pull back and, and uh, let a Palestinian state or Palestinian independence be created in these areas if we can find a solution that protects our security. And, uh, and so if they, if they stop attacking us and firing rockets at us and sending, uh, you know, terrorists from, from these areas, and we're confident that, that, you know, whatever state is created there would, would live in peace and security with us, we will draw, you know, any, any kind of uh, military occupation. Uh, and the other thing is that, that we took over Jerusalem at that time. And, you know, soldiers actually climbed up on top of the Dome of the Mount and put an Israeli flag up there. 
Um, our chief of staff at that time, Moshe Dayan, immediately told them within minutes to take it down, that we're going to allow, uh, we're going to respect uh, Muslim uh, holy sites along with all the other holy sites, and we're going to provide free access for every religion, you know, to their holy sites in Jerusalem. And so Israel has really done everything it can, to, I think, to respect the, the, the rights and feelings of, of uh, those minorities, both in East Jerusalem and, and, uh, and is also consistently said, we're willing, we're willing to, to withdraw and, and recognize a state if we actually have a partner that will withdraw its, its, its declarations of destroying us. Yeah, that's pretty ominous right there. I mean, imagine us as the United States, if Canada and Mexico, you know, has said, hey, ultimately we want you gone. That, that, <laughs> that, would, that would not bode well for us and there would be actions, but you've got all your neighbors, well, most of them anyway, who are saying that. And then on top of that, the complication is you've got all these splinter groups in and around your country, and I do mean in your country, that they can't be controlled anyway. Hamas, who does Hamas answer to? Hamas doesn't answer to anybody. They're an organization that was created out of the Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, and the, difficult, the other difficult thing is that, you know, so that there were Palestinians that were displaced. And there, there's a huge, I mean, let's look at this, the, the crisis or the conflict through, through the lenses of, of a refugee crisis. At, at that time, around 1948, in the post-World War II era, there was a huge population exchange. As we were fighting our war of independence and this violence was taking place, there were 350,000 Jews that were forcefully expelled from Arab nations, and they came into Israel, full citizenship, rights, work, everything else. There were about 720,000 Palestinians that went into Arab nations or even the, the, both the West Bank and Gaza. And from that time until today, they're the only post-World War II group that still recognizes as refugees. And so one of the problems is that, you know, Gaza is completely controlled by Hamas and 80% of its residents still see themselves as refugees. So they get all this money from from uh, the United States, Europe, the United Nations, which they're supposed to use to, to improve the life of the refugees, build infrastructure and everything else. But instead of that, they just stockpile weapons. And then every few years, you know, we'll have a flare up like this and they'll fire thousands of rockets at Israel. By the way, in order to create the ceasefire, they received a commitment from Egypt to give them another $500 million, another $330 million from the United States, which is your tax money, which is going to the Hamas in Gaza, you should be aware of that, as well as 300 million from Qatar. So they walked away from this violence uh, with another billion dollars in their coffers. And the question is, is somebody actually going to make sure that this money is being used to improve the life of the Palestinians in Gaza instead of just, again, stockpiling weapons that again, in another four or five years, we're going to have another one of these flare-ups. It's you know, so it's, it's kind of this cycle of pimping poverty in a way in order to raise funds, uh, you know, and then instead of helping the people, they're actually, you know, attacking Israel. So here's my tension on this, Clev. I, I'm, I'm a guy who reads the Bible. Shocker, shocker. I'm a pastor. I actually, not only do I read it, I actually believe it. Not only do I believe it, I actually do it. At least I try to. So I read this, and there are, there are just a lot of verses in there that are just copy-paste pro-Israel verses. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you know, God's chosen remnant. Let's just chalk through, through, through that. Now, of course, you can interpret scriptures any way you choose to or any way you think is the right way, but there's just a lot in there, okay? So I, anybody who reads the Bible seriously and diligently, I think is going to come away 
with a soft spot in their heart to any nation that's called Israel. Okay. Now, having said that, when I go to, uh, for our listeners to know, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem is in Palestinian occupied territory. It is still, it is part of Israel. It's under Israel's authority, but they basically carved out a section and said, okay, we're not going to flex our muscles inside of here, at least not too much. You can run your own society. Here's the thing, but we're going to make sure we have gates that you're not going to be able to send bombers over to blow us up. We're going to have ways for that. They're kind of, you just can't come over and do bad stuff. So you got your thing under authority, but we're going to try to keep, keep you all contained. And I interact with, you know, one guy over there who was a guide. And he said, let me tell you what my life was like. I, I can't fly anywhere. So I can't, I can't get out to go to the airport in Israel. And if I, I want to go to any place, I got to go to Jordan. It's like a three-day trip to go through all the checkpoints and everything. He said, I, I'm, I'm literally just la- I'm locked inside of a cage. My, my, heart, my heart goes out to him. I'm like, oh, man, that's tough. That guy just got born there. That's all he did. He got born there, and he's got to deal with that. Then another guy, actually was a tour guide, believe it or not, a tour guide that was taking us through Bethlehem. He said, let me ask you this, you Americans. When you have a revolution, when you decide that the nation of England is subverting your freedoms and you decide to overtake them, you are revolutionaries. But when we do the same, we are terrorists. Why is it that you get the name revolutionaries and we are called terrorists? And I went, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, zero response. So that's my conundrum in this. W- w- what do you say to that? First of all, a, there, there's no question that the Palestinians are definitely suffering. And we have to recognize that. And, you know, Bethlehem, these people you're speaking to, that is part of the West Bank. So it's, you know, under the Palestinian Authority administration. They're between a rock and a hard place. On one hand, Israel controls very carefully who it gives um, permission to, to come through the checkpoints and to work in Israel. And by the way, uh, between 150,000 to 200,000 Palestinians every day go through those checkpoints to work in Israel. And, you know, they put food on the table on average for about 10 people per salary because there's in the Palestinian Authority, you have kind of intergenerational cohabitation, grandparents living with parents, living with children. So you have, about a, you have over a million Palestinians that their very livelihood and the bread on their tables is, is created by, by jobs in Israel, right? So, but you, you were probably speaking to people that do not have permission to come in and work in Israel. Maybe it's not in the areas of industry or, or jobs that, you know, uh, that they, they give permits. And so it's true. So if they want to travel internationally, they would have to go over to Jordan and fly out of Amman and that, that creates an inconvenience. And and so I it, it's right. They're, they're between a rock and a hard place because they can't enter into Israel freely, but then the Palestinian Authority is a dictatorial police state, <laughs> which, you know, still has people sitting in jail right now just for expressing political opinions. And sometimes those people are tortured and even killed. So, you know, it's not a night. They 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 would, if you, any of those Palestinians would give their left leg to have Israeli citizenship and, and all of the, the social benefits and the civil rights and everything that comes with it. And they see me on the other side of the border and, and the quality of my life and, 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 they're, and they're very envious of that and, and my heart goes out to them. They, they, they have a lot of pain and, and suffering and it's really because of this unresolved uh, political conflict. There's no question. Taking a quick break here to let you know that my latest book, Move, is out right now. This isn't like any other devotional book, at least none that I've read. 
It's full of the things I always find myself talking to guys about around the campfire or if we're having a couple beers or on the back deck. We've added 22% new content to this devotional from a previous version that was self-published. So even if you own the original, there's a lot of new stuff in here. Get your copy on Amazon today. And while you're at it, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review it. It actually helps us drive new listeners to the show. I think we might have been a help to you and we want to help be a help to as many people as possible. Uh, Speaking of being a help, let's get back to it. Talk to us more about what you've done with the with social justice issues around Palestinians and around Jews. I, th- I find that fascinating. So I founded an organization around, around 17 years ago called the Jerusalem Institute of Justice. And what happens is so many people blame human rights uh, suffering of, of Israelis on the Palestinians and, and then blame human rights suffering of the Palestinians on the Israelis. And the organization I founded, we said, well, let's challenge the Israeli government on, on civil rights issues within the Israeli society to make Israel a freer and better place, particularly for minority religions, particularly for Christian minorities, you know, because I'm personally connected to, uh, to that community. So I, I think I feel their pain more than other communities. And let's challenge the, the Palestinian Authority. So in the areas that the Palestinians are have some administrative uh, influence or control over, which is the West Bank and Gaza, let's challenge the Palestinian Authority on their human rights abuses against Palestinians. So we're not playing the blame game. We're not blaming Israel for all the Palestinians' problems or Palestine for all the Israeli problems. We are saying each leadership should take responsibility for making life better uh, and improving the the welfare and human rights of, of their people in the areas that they administer. And so it's very different advocacy on both sides of the the conflict because in Israel we do have rule of law, we have an independent judicial system. Jerusalem Institute of Justice, which I founded, has handled upwards of a thousand cases now successfully over the last 17 years. And uh, I think we've only lost two. So so literally, like, we, we have rule of law, if there's civil rights case, it might take time and, and resources, but, but you have a very good chance of winning. The Palestinian Authority, there is no independent court system. All the judges in Gaza are appointed by Hamas and the judges in, in the West Bank by Fatah or the PLO. And so there is no recourse. I can't go in there and represent people that, you know, as, as a civil rights activist in their court. So what we do is we research, uh, document, and record the abuse of human rights and then present reports before governments around the world that fund the Palestinian Authority, calling on them to make that funding conditioned upon more human rights and, and you know, less, less uh, uh, abuses and, you know, to make life better for, for the Palestinians. So in that, in that sense, I represent both Israelis and Palestinians. So you work for an organization that's trying to bring justice for Jews and Palestinians. Uh, you, you are Jewish, so I, I would assume you're always going to lean towards the side of Israel versus the Muslim world or the Palestines. Uh, I, I would. I'm always going to lean towards the side of America than I am those damn Canadians and Mexicans. That's for darn sure. <laughs> but you know, I got you, you, you. Lean towards Israel, but I also know that you're you know you're a level-headed guy. And you do love all people and you've got organizations that are trying to help all people. What do we do? What, what's the aggressive move here? What, if we get Kalev Myers elected prime minister of Israel, what's the play? Yeah, I, I think it really comes down to um, 
looking for solutions that, that improve the quality of life of both peoples on both, both sides of the conflict. Um, and that's not always easy to do. You have to fight to do that. For instance, just, just a practical, you know, in this situation with Hamas, I talked about them, you, they're about to receive billions of dollars of aid now after, after the fighting and so on and so forth. Why don't the people who send the aid actually go in there and hire building contractors themselves to make sure that hospitals and schools and proper infrastructure is being built and not just shoveling money over to Hamas to, to you know, which, which will then use it for military purposes and, and terrorism. So, so there, there's, a, there's a proper way to, to, to make sure if we're going to help in the situation that we're actually improving the lives of people on the ground and, and not making it worse. And, and so, but the reason I, I come to that, let me talk to you for a second about the damn Canadians and damn Mexicans, okay? You know, the, the difference between you and I, Brian, is, is the same difference between you and, and the Mexicans or the, or the Canadians. At, at the DNA level, every human being is 99.9% .9 identical. So every difference between you and I, eye color, skin color, whatever, you know, our personalities, that's 0.1% of our DNA. It's really, it's, you know, and so within human nature, we have this tendency to, to attack everybody, even though we're all made from the same material. You know, whether it's the Mexicans, the Canadians, the Palestinians, or anyone else, the difference between me and a Hamas uh, terrorist uh, at the DNA level is only 0.1%. Now, does that mean I'm just going to roll over and let them do whatever they want and not, you know, not implement my God-given right to self-defense? Absolutely not. You know, we're going to do everything we can to protect our people, but we're also going to look for solutions that will bring down the the flames of conflict and 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 create a situation of more peace, more security, and better life for, for both peoples. I think that's our God-given responsibility right there. Okay, but we're all the way over here in America. The thing that bothers us about this is we're we're tired of talking about it. I mean, we certainly don't like explosions in foreign countries. We don't we don't like the tension that's there. Uh, a lot of us are just it comes up here. It is again. Why should we? Why why should the average American care about this conflict or this problem? I think the average American should care about the problem uh, for a few reasons. I I think that. Um, and, and, and you're right, this is, we're all the way on the other side of the world, and you know, why does this make a difference to me, and so on and so forth. Right now in the United States, there is more anti-Semitism, more anti-Semitic attacks than there's ever been. People are attacking Jews in the street in, in, in California, in New York, Los Angeles, and the Jews that have nothing to do with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, but you have, ra you have radical people marching through the streets saying, you know, F the Jews and rape their daughters and terrible signs and, you know, and attacking just over the last few years, people have actually firebombed synagogues in the United States. And and I think when, you know, when you see that kind of uh, anti-Semitism and, and violence taking place where you live, I think it, it's, it, it is the responsibility of American Christians to stand up and say, hey, not on my watch. And I, it's very important to, to do that. Um, there's, there's only about uh, 13 million Jews in the world. And, you know, they, some, some of the, the celebrities, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't know if I should mention names, some of the celebrities that I just have put blatant anti-Semitic material up on their pages. Yes. Have 30 Go, million yes, followers. Men yes. Mention them. It's, it's, it's aggressive life. Mention them. Well, I mean, I can, I can mention a guy like Roger Wa uh, Waters, right? Um, and, uh, <laughs> 
<laughs> so he has tens of millions of followers. The, the amount of followers he has on social network, uh, on social media, is, is more than all the Jews in the world, right? And and so just by putting out one one, one anti-Semitic, anti-Israeli comment, uh, justifying boycotts and sanctions and let's attack Israel, is 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 a horrible thing. And and then you want to see your 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 Christian friends. Now, I'm not saying I want every evangelical Christian to say we're going to support Israel and, and, and be against the Palestinians. Quite the opposite. I want voices to stand up and say, wait a second. We shouldn't even be taking sides here. Everybody's created in God's image. I can support Israel without hating the Palestinians. I can support the Palestinians without hating Israel. And this type of blatant hatred and anti-Semitism is unacceptable in my community and in my social network. And, and really, you know, standing up and, and, and uh, against the, this, this kind of nonsense that really shouldn't you shouldn't be having that in the United States what are the effects of all these boycotts against Israel because there there's a pretty concerted effort in that vein is there not there is a concerted effort in the vein and, and it's twofold it's both economic and um, and cultural, uh, and so you have sometimes uh, b- big celebrities that, that you know will cancel, you know, because of the boycott movement. But then also some companies have come under fire for doing business with Israel. And again, the the jobs of Israeli-owned companies over here support both Palestinians and Israelis. It's it's such a patronistic, idiotic thing to do to come over here and and you know for instance I'll give I'll give you I'll give you an example SodaStream right SodaStream is pretty well known company around the world that carbonates uh, drinks in in your home and so on and so forth it's a great company because it's it's great for the environment you know there's less bottles that get out into the oceans and so on and so forth anyway SodaStream was employing hundreds of Palestinians in 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 the West Bank they were attacked by the boycott movement and because of that they had to shut down their their facility in the West Bank and and move it into undisputed Israeli territory. Do you know what happened? Hundreds of jobs were taken away from Palestinians and given to Israeli Jews. So did you help the Palestinians by boycotting SodaStream? No, quite the opposite. <laughs> Such a, it's, you know, well, we're going to help the Palestinians by destroying Palestinian jobs and boycotting these companies that, that provide work for them. And, and so that's why I had Arise try to encourage as much as possible economic uh, activity and business that is providing jobs and economic security both for Israeli Palestinians. These are Arab owned companies that are employing Jews and Jewish owned companies that are employing Palestinian people coming to work together, creating value for each other's lives and being productive in every way. At the end of the day, the boycott movement's going to lose because. There's so much great innovation coming out of Israel. What, what does every government want for its citizens? It wants, number one, security, number two, economic uh, uh, success. And Israel is providing security for literally every continent except for Antarctica because we have excellent intelligence services and we're preventing terrorist attacks in the United States and in Europe and other places by sharing intelligence, right? So that's number one. Number two, economically, uh, we're we're referred to as startup nation because we have more startup companies and more R&D centers per capita by a huge margin than any other country in the world. And so we're coming up with with so many wonderful technological advances and every company, every country needs that today. So at the end of the day, I think reality is stronger than, than these kind of boycott movements. And, and they're not going to be able to break the Israeli economy because every political leader, uh, you know, is, is looking to Israeli innovation and technology today. That's the reason that now we, we're seeing these peace deals with the Arab, Arab states, uh, you know, with the United Arab Emirates and, 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 and Bahrain. 
be, because they they know that you know as as more energy sources are replacing oil, they're they're not going to uh, the, the oil isn't going to be able to support them forever. They need to get into IT markets and into innovation and technology. And their their neighbor right right across the border is is really the strongest place where that's being developed right now. And so it's it's. I think the economy is actually driving better diplomatic relations with Israel rather than the boycott movement winning in some way. Kalev, are you ready for the lightning round? I'm ready. Yeah, let's All do right. it. <laughs> I, ask, I ask you a question and you answer it like one to two sentences. Very simple questions like this. So what's the answer? That's You could do it one answer. Well, you can do it one sentence, right? Just what is the answer to the conflict? What do we do? Moral clarity. That's the answer. Okay. If Kalev Myers was prime minister of Israel, I would. I would, I would be unforgiving in my military response to every terrorist threat. But at the same time, I would aggressively pursue negotiations with the Palestinians to try to come up with, with a, with an agreed uh, permanent solution to the issue. Should Palestinians be given citizenship to Israel? I, I think that the Palestinians in the West Bank should be given uh, uh, citizenship in Israel. They, they would go from being about 20% to 30% in our society, which I think is acceptable. It would change dynamics in our political situation, but it, it, we, it, you know, it wouldn't be uh, a, uh, the Jews would still be a minority. And so we wouldn't be, we, we, we wouldn't be threatened with becoming kind of the 24th Islamic dictatorship in the Middle East. I don't think Palestinians in Gaza should be given citizenship in Israel. You have 2 million Palestinians there. No Jews are living there, unlike the West Bank, where you have both Jews and, and Palestinians living together. It's 100% Arab Muslims controlled by Hamas. Uh, I think that, you know, Egypt, it would be great if Egypt would take more responsibility for what's happening there or the international community. I don't see, you know, granting them Israeli citizenship is something that should ever happen. How you pray when it comes to this conflict or what you pray? I pray uh, always, you know, we're instructed, everyone around the world is instructed to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. So I pray for a, you know, a, a peace and, and a, a, um, a ceasefire as soon as possible that as many innocent lives would be saved. And I also pray, I think the greatest, this is what I pray every day. I'm a very simple guy, Brian, but I believe the greatest prayer that any human being can pray is God make my life an answer to somebody else's prayer. And you have so many hurting people in the midst of these conflicts. And it's like, give me an opportunity. I can tell you stories that, you know, every time that that happens, I, I, I get teary eyed uh, because, you know, and I, and I was re- reaching out uh, to some of my Arab Palestinian friends uh, uh, during this conflict. And, and they would just hug me and thank me. And, and being that guy that's just like, you know, an, an answer to other people's prayer where people feel like nobody's listening to them and, you know, they're, they're being abused by this violence. Be, being that voice, being that light, that, that's what I want. That's what I want my life to be. Something you love about Israeli culture. Now, remember, this is a lightning round. Something you love about Israeli culture. I love uh, the directness of, of Israeli culture. You know, when you talk to an Israeli woman and say good morning, she doesn't think 20 times, what does he actually mean? You know, <laughs> so there's, on one hand, we lack politeness, but on the other hand, it's a refreshing directness. You always know everything's on the table. You know where we stand. And I like that. Something you love about Palestinian culture. 
What I love about Palestinian culture is their um, their manners, their politeness, and their hospitality. I think we as Israelis can learn a lot. So if we're on the the, the very direct uh, side of the spectrum to the point of rudeness, Palestinians are on the very, very polite side of the spectrum, which can lead to duplicity. But I think there's a lot we can, we can learn from them and just how to be kinder and more respecting and honoring, of whether it's our guests or our customers or any, anything else. How do you deal with the fear of living in a conflict zone? You know, I, I actually, maybe it's my personality, maybe it's because of faith. I don't live in a lot of fear, Brian. Um, I, I was pumping my car about a week and a half ago, heard some explosions behind me, looked on the other side of the highway, and there's pillars of smoke going up. Everybody at the gas station is running for cover. It was obvious. It was. It was, a, it, was a locket, it was a rocket landing, you know, about let's say in American terms, 200 or 300 yards from where I was standing, I didn't feel any sense of fear whatsoever. I just thought, you know, thank God that didn't land on me. <laughs> because it <laughs> might have been 200 yards, over more, but in Gaza, that's a difference of maybe half a millimeter of where, where they're aiming the darn thing, you know? And so, you know, I got in my Jeep and drove back to my home and then to make sure my family was okay and, you know, everything was fine. But I wouldn't say I, I deal with, 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 with a lot of fear. I don't do stupid things. But I trust God that, you know, if I'm if my life is is uh, is, is, you know, in his will, he'll, he'll, he's got my back covered. What sets your mentality apart from some of the other responses? I think it really it comes down to an issue of faith, Brian, is are we living within a bigger story uh, within God's story or is God living within our little story? <laughs> and if you don't have some kind of higher power that you believe is really in control of things and that you're not going to die until your time has come, then there's a huge level of uncertainty. And, and these kind of events can create terrible trauma because it's like your life flashes before your eyes and you think, oh, my God, it might be over. And, you know, and that and, it, and it's very, very difficult to kind of live under that 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 cloud of fear and uncertainty. It, it comes down to my faith in God. Well, we're so deep into politics. Let's go deep again, uh, just to close us out here. COVID, that's been my observation with COVID. Crossroads, no matter what we've done, we've gotten, that's my day job, pastor of this church I started called Crossroads. Uh, We've just gotten criticized for things we did, things we didn't do. Um, Just, eh, you never win talking about it. I I took a very uh, conservative stance. I don't mean conservative politically. I mean conservative as far as just do let's go overboard to be safe, wearing masks, when to shut down services, all that kind of stuff. Um, Because I felt that's where people were. Most people were. It's where they are. But personally, personally, I never had a a day of stress over anything at all, at all. And as I've watched the stress level in Americans, I believe that the stress level over COVID is directly related to our faith level. Our stress and our fears are escalating and our faith in God is decreasing. I'm just not afraid of losing my life. I don't want to lose my life. I definitely don't. I'd rather lose my life actually than lose a limb. I'm, I'm, I'm not, but I'm not concerned about losing my life at all. So when COVID comes around, I'm like, okay, my, my, my faith tells me to pick up my cross and follow him every day. I'm already a walking dead man. Uh, but if you don't, if you don't have a faith, then this life is really all there is, and you should be afraid, so very afraid. And that's, I think, that's, I think uh, why America has been so freaky about this. We're just not a faith-filled nation anymore. I think that's true, and I think it goes both ways, Brian. 
So I think you you have a community that that's just so afraid of 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 COVID that they're doing everything they can and kind of overcompensating, <laughs> wearing two masks plus getting vaccinated plus this. But then you have another uh, group that's like, we're not going to do any of that because they're afraid of control of the government. Oh my God, they're getting control of my life now, and maybe Bill if we, Gates is uh, implanting yeah. a chip inside <laughs> exactly. of me. Exactly. Yeah, we're we're going to have mind control through five G and you know some kind of nanoparticles in this in this vaccination. It's like we're that, that's also a stupid type of fear it's like well what happened to your faith in god you know what i mean and, right and and you just take a right. chill pill and and believe that everything works together for good to those who love love him and are called according to his purpose Kalev, this has been great is there uh, anything um you want to leave with us if someone wants to follow up with you or know what you're doing just go ahead and give us an advertisement for yourself yeah, no problem. If you want to get in touch with me, you can go to uh, ariseforisrael.com. Just those letters and those words, ariseforisrael.com. Reach out to us. Uh, if you want more information, updates, balance updates regarding the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and other cool stuff, you can sign up for our newsletter there or, or you can email me. Um, I'd love to stay connected. And uh, thank you, Brian, for uh, for reaching out. Uh, and Crossroads, I should say, has has been a, a faithful supporter of Arise, and I appreciate that. I want to I want to thank all the people in your community for for standing up and, and uh, trying to be a blessing for both Israelis and Palestinians through the work that we do over here. So. Thank you for that, really. Yeah, you're welcome. You're a good friend. I have great respect for you. And that is the end of another Aggressive Life. Hey, if you like this, if you heard something you haven't heard before, give us a review. Of course, if you're not going to give us a good review, then don't give us a good review. Don't give. If you're not going to give us a good review, then don't do it at all. But if you would give a good review, come on, give us a good review. Let's pass the love around because you're getting some stuff here in the aggressive life I think you might not be getting anywhere else. So that's it for this week on The Aggressive Life. Hey, thanks for listening. For more aggressive living, head over to bryantome.com. Get signed up for the mailing list to get regular shots of positive aggression sent straight to your inbox. And while you're there, you can also find articles, podcasts, and books. I'm also active on Instagram. Search Brian Tome. Special thanks to the band judges for the music. Aggressive Life with Brian Tome is a production of Crossroads Church, Cincinnati, Ohio.